A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. If you want to see the face of a man who knows he's won, look no further than Walt Disney's face in the 1966 Epcot pitch film. We know what our goals are. We know what we hope to accomplish. And believe me, it's the most exciting and challenging assignment we've ever tackled at Walt Disney Productions. Today, I want to share with you. He is beaming. He's surrounded by maps and graphs, twice as tall as him. Walt is introducing his plans to the public for the very first time, and he is confident that once the public sees what he has planned for them, they will fall in love with the dream of Disney. And when I watch this presentation, all I can see is a deep dive into exactly what Walt's brain is thinking of on October 27th, 1966. This pitch is a masterful piece of filmmaking. When Walt begins to explain what Disney World will look like from an aerial view, the camera is locked off on not one, not two, but five different parks. This is already way bigger than Disneyland. But as Walt begins to speak, the camera pulls back to reveal But as you can see on this master plan, the theme park and all the other tourist facilities fill just one small area of our enormous Florida project. And the camera just keeps zooming out and zooming out and zooming out until finally you see Walt all the way down at the bottom, looking like one of his own seven dwarves compared to the scale of what he purchased in Florida. According to this scale, I am six miles tall. Now that's 12 miles from here up to here, and the whole area encompasses 27,400 acres. That is 43 square miles, twice the size of the island of Manhattan. Those five theme parks, the map of Disney World is the size of Walt's head alone. The rest of the map is more than twice as tall as he is. He needs a dang fishing pole just to be able to point all the way up to the top. According to Walt's map, everything that we know of as Disney World is tucked into the smallest corner at the very tip top. Walt knows everybody wants another theme park. Everybody is going to go for Disney World. But he knows he needs to sell everyone else, the public, government officials, even his own employees, on his vision of Epcot. The heart of of everything he wants to do. And this film is how he's going to pitch it. Unfortunately, Walt's wrong about one thing. Epcot isn't the heart of Disney World. He is. 
Walt Disney is the living, beating heart of this organization. And so what happens when the heart is gone? In this film, you do see the face of a man who knows he's just one. But you also see the face of a man who doesn't know that one week after filming this will be diagnosed with lung cancer. Watch this Epcot film. Because Walt is a month and a half away from his 65th birthday as he stands on his Florida Project set. And while he doesn't know it, he's also a month and a half away from dying. Walt, the heart of the company, is about to exit the picture. His brother Roy, we've always referred to as the money guy, but for this story, let's think of Roy as the hands. At this point, Roy is ready to retire. He's 73, for crying out loud. And when Walt dies, the heart of the company is gone, leaving only the hands. And he knows there's a billion questions of direction that he wishes Walt could give him. But he also knows he's the hands. And he's got plenty of work that needs to get done. What happens when the heart's ripped out? The hands do what hands do. Roy pushes back his retirement and gets to work. They have to win the hearts and minds of everyone. Roy is about to pull off one of the most brazen plays for power from a private company ever to take place. The Disney Corporation is going to seduce the public with Walt's dream. They're going to seize government, municipal, health services, even energy policy to create the city of tomorrow only to deliver the theme park of today. And creating an independent government within the United States without one shot fired? That just might be. The world's greatest con. This episode of World's Greatest Con brought to you by our store. Look, if we're pulling any kind of con, it's the fact that ad revenues are not very much. What really keeps us afloat, what really keeps the cons flowing, is your trust in us to deliver excellent holiday gifts. And this is the time of year to jump in. We've got the brand new Vox Tempest Puzzle Box, our best puzzle box yet that leads you on a year-long journey through time and space. We've got crazy lock-picking pens. We've got lighters that shoot lightning in order to light your cigarettes. We even have a brand new version of a magical ring that not only gives you the ability to perform 23 magic tricks, but also has a secret shim that will let you escape from police-issued handcuffs. Bottle openers, secret watches that actually light fires, multi-tools, and so much more. Look, you guys know you want to buy something clever and thoughtful here at the holiday season. Do us a favor. Please keep us in business. We have a huge sale going on. Head on over to scamstuff.com. That's S-C-A-M-S-T-U-F-F.com. It's gear for the modern rogue. Think about the cultural impact of losing Walt. 
Three years ago, he discovered the land to build his dream on, and the very same day, JFK died. Three years later, when good old Uncle Walt dies, the impact is almost as strong. Two days after Walt dies, Roy and the rest of the Disney family have his body cremated. The holidays would buy them some buffer time, but the rest of the team needs to figure out something out fast. Yes, Disney World was going to happen, but for the success Walt wanted, Epcot needed to happen, and that's a lot less certain. Lucky for them, they were starting out on the right foot. Let's back up. It's late 1965, and Walt, after being outed by the press, confirms the existence of his Disney World plans. He lets the governor of Florida announce it at a press conference in October, just before Walt joins him the next month on stage to shake the man's hand. One year later, in 1966, Walt's dead, but not before shooting this vital Epcot film. So what did the Disney company do for those 12 months in between? The short answer? They moved, and fast. They worked, and did lots of it. It wasn't enough to have the land locked down. Walt's vision required total legal control of the property, both so the parks could function at the scale he's looking for, and to make it so that nobody could tell him what to do. Meanwhile, Walt's Project Winter team have a huge list of issues with the lot, starting with the state of the land itself. Yeah, it's 26,000 acres, but it's Florida's swampland. In the summer, 75% of it is underwater. But they have good news. Florida Statute Chapter 298 allows them to form a drainage district for their land. No need to change a law. No convincing voters or lobbying representatives. All they need is some paperwork, and they can move that water however they want. Bridges? You bet. Canals? Why not? Need a dam to stop that water from flowing? Go ahead. And to Disney's relief, the process is as easy as it sounds on paper. In May of 66, the Reedy Creek Drainage District is approved by a local court. The team gets to handle the draining without any kind of reporting to any government. You have to imagine Walt is loving this total power over the land he bought. No ifs, ands, or buts. He gets to pick what happens. Want an island here? Go for it. No government body can breathe down his neck. One problem down. What's next? Now it's getting tricky. Walt's team informs him that they need to persuade the state of Florida to pass a new law protecting the company's intellectual property. All those knockoff parks surrounding Disneyland, those couldn't happen again. And the current laws on the books were just too weak. Great. Simple requests. Ring, ring. Government, please let us protect our IP. Walt wants to take it a step further. His head is still in the clouds of Epcot, and so he just jots down, oh, 20 more things he would like. Little things like total control over water, sewer, public utility, roads and bridges that come off of public roads onto his property, pest control, firefighters, his own waste collection facility, an airport alongside the ability to build whatever transportation and parking facilities he deems fit, the right for eminent domain, which Walt says is already kind of gifted to him through his drainage district. Oh, and while we're at it, maybe an exemption of state statutes, county ordinances, any other regulation when it comes to building on his land... Let's say he could just build whatever he wants, as long as it's on his property. Ooh, 
And how about the ability to levy taxes on people and to impose liens on unpaid taxes? You got to pay for things somehow, right? Oh, and uh, nobody gets to vote because that would make things too confusing and slow things down. And finally, if this is going to be the city of the future, why not just write in there that he can work with any energy method, both existing and to be invented in the future in perpetuity? Yeah, who knows? We may want to build a nuclear reactor at some point. All of that was way more than what Walt, the heart of the operation, had asked from California. Roy, the hands of the operation, he's concerned. Florida was friendly to businesses, but this was a whole new level. So Roy, the former CIA agent Hallowell, and the general counsel Foster need to convince Walt that they have the right tactics to pull this off. Hallowell begins. First off, he points out that the county doesn't even have building ordinances. Asking for an exemption for something that doesn't exist? Piece of cake. Second of all, Disney World is going to need a ton of new materials that most other factories don't need. General Electric is going to what? You need bricks to build buildings? Disney World and Epcot are going to require unique plastics to build an incredible amusement park, a city of the future. Tell the Florida government that this stuff is way over their heads and watch them sign away any rights to oversight. While we're at it, why stop there? I mean, Disney has the drainage district now, right? And what exactly is drainage? You could argue water supplies or drainage. Sewage, that's definitely drainage. I mean, technically, even roads are a type of drainage. Florida's done this kind of thing in the past, giving extra powers to pre-existing districts. Why wouldn't they grant the same thing to Disney? Hallowell finishes with the most important proposal. Get Florida to do the legal mumbo-jumbo it takes to incorporate the drainage district, handing all the power over to Disney in the process. Now, to convince Walt that this is the solution, Foster steps in, and he pulls a deliberately obtuse, boring, bullet-point, index card-based presentation that crawls by. Index card by index card, the man explains to Walt what the drainage system will or won't accomplish. And when Walt has clearly had enough of this slow presentation, Foster gives him a shortcut. Municipalities. All you got to do is get the state of Florida to hand over as much power as possible and they can create a super district that can control the future of Disney World and most importantly, your precious little Epcot. Another area in the world. And with your cooperation, I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now. Shortly after that meeting, where they decided the tactics they would use to gather as much power as they could, Walt shot that Epcot film, designed to convince government employees and the general public of his wild, crazy dream. A week later, he was in the hospital. Weeks after that, he had a lung removed. And a few more weeks, he was dead. But that film, that plan, that vision, that was entrusted to Roy. That and the last few handful of notes on the project. But truly, Walt was gone now. 
1966, those 12 months had been crucial for the planning of Disney World. But from now on, their leader wouldn't be around to see it through. They only had Walt's ghost to guide them. Whether Walt was alive or dead, Roy's problems were still the same. As 1967 kicks off, Hallowell confirms with Orange County that, yes, Disney would still seek chapters for two municipalities in the area. With Roy leading the charge, his first decision was an easy one. A way to honor his dead brother the only way he knew how, by renaming the park before a single brick was laid. Disney World was dead. Long live Walt Disney World. Roy's second order of business? Tackling this whole Epcot problem. Everyone knew that Epcot was a Walt thing. Walt was fine with the parks, but his passion was his experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Roy's passion was pulling off whatever crazy idea Walt was onto this time. So Roy gathers Project Winter and tells them what they're all waiting to hear. The battle is far from over. We're going to finish this project, and we're going to do it just the way Walt wanted it. Don't you ever forget it. I want every one of you to do exactly what you were going to do when Walt was alive. But watching that tape, Roy still felt concerned about pulling off that kind of vision. He'd watched Walt spend his last days on Earth obsessing over Epcot, not saying goodbye to his family, not asking about production on the new movie. For Walt, there was nothing but Epcot. The day before he died, he stared at the ceiling, counting out the tiles by square miles of his park, pointing at the highway, the monorail, every little detail. Roy could feel that passion driving him. Who was he to say no to his brother's dreams? The money man taking creative control? The best way to honor Walt's legacy would be to carry out the plans as best he could. So it's time to get to work. He just has to go to Governor Burns and ask for... Wait. Wait. Where is Governor Burns? Wait. Who the hell is this guy? I pledge you progress without new taxes. I am unalterably opposed to the ultra-liberals who promise you higher and higher and higher taxes. But I need your help. Your vote to bring sound administration to Florida's $2 billion a year business. Vote for the man with a plan. Vote Kirk, governor. Turns out, as much as Hayden Burns tried to present himself as the ticket to Florida's economic future by hitching his wagon to the Disney company, that wasn't enough to stop his own party from primarying him over his segregationist views. So when Burns loses his own primary, he refused to throw his support behind the more liberal candidate, which resulted in an easy victory for a tough-on-crime Republican named Claude Kirk Jr. That was bad news for Roy and the team, because Burns had been more willing than any other politician to bend over backwards to impress Florida voters. Kirk, however, already has a narrative in mind. In fact, he flies all the way out to Anaheim, California, just to check out Disneyland, looking for crime. Crimes that he can blame the Disney Corporation for bringing in. We're trading a friendly politician who's eager to make people forget about his views on race for a politician who greeted death row inmates on the campaign trail by telling him he would be the one signing their death records if he was elected. 
things are not going great for Roy. No matter what, they're going to have the drainage district from before Walt's death. Who knows how much power they're going to have to cede to this new guy. What they needed was a silver bullet. Somebody who knew both sides of the business. I mean, if only there was some actor-turned-politician that they could get on super short notice. Thank you and good evening. I have spent most of my life as a Democrat. I recently have seen fit to follow another course. I believe that the issues confronting us cross party lines. And as it happened, while Governor Kirk was on his fact-finding mission on the hunt for Disneyland-related crimes in Anaheim, he got an invite to meet a fellow governor, California Governor Ronald Reagan. And to nobody's surprise, Reagan was about as pro-Disney as they came. And in classic Reagan fashion, He makes his pitch to Kirk on all the positives of Disneyland, how it helped California's economy, how it bolstered tourism, and how things were about to be very different for the state of Florida. Disney wasn't the enemy. He could boost the entire economy, winning him re-election just like that. Maybe that meeting was all it took to sway Kirk, but even that wouldn't be enough. Because Roy knew that to win over the rest of the House and the Senate, He's going to have to think the way Walt did. He's going to have to go to the people of Florida and prove to them that they couldn't live without that Walt Disney World. And that Walt Disney World couldn't live without the freedom to do whatever it needed without any government intervention. One problem. Roy wasn't Walt. Roy wasn't charismatic like Walt, or charming like Walt, or TV-ready like Walt. How would he be able to sell thousands of strangers on the promise of Walt Disney World, let alone the insane ideas behind Epcot? Luckily, this problem had a very simple solution. Roy wouldn't need to sell anyone on these dreams. Walt could, even from the grave. We're back to that magic, bizarre film. On February 2nd, 1967, the Walt Disney Company held a major movie premiere in Winter Park, Florida, at the glorious Park West Theater. All the stars came out. Roy Disney, Florida Governor Kirk, and every single Disney executive involved in Project Winter. Notably missing from the crowd was the film star, but it didn't matter. The audience was still pumped to be there. They were about to see the final performance of one Walt Disney. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Disneyland, USA. This was all a Disney dream a dozen years ago. A far-out project that was totally unproved. Today, 60 million people have come here from every state in America and from almost every nation around the world. In Town Square on Main Street, many have paused... This thing is a masterpiece. It starts out slow as an unseen narrator welcomes the audience to Disneyland. It's brilliant, because if you're going to sell an audience on the impossible, make them realize that the impossible has already happened. Disneyland grew out of Walt Disney's own feeling that an amusement park should offer more to the entire family. Here was no mere amusement park. Here was a whole new concept in entertainment, where parents and children could have fun, together. Again. Disney's selling the simple idea of Walt as a visionary. And if his vision of Disneyland was such a success, what does he have in store next? Before long, we're introduced to Walt Disney himself one last time. And now, here is Walt Disney. Welcome to a little bit of Florida here in California. This is where the early planning is taking place for our so-called Disney World Project. As you can see on this map, we have a perfect location in Florida, almost in the very center of the state. In fact, we selected this site because it's so easy for tourists and Florida residents to get here by automobile. Now, in larger scale... There's no reason to hold back secrets anymore. Walt is proud of why he chose Florida for his site, and he wants Florida to be proud, too. He starts bragging about the size and scope, the space of Disney World, the things that are going to make it better than its predecessor by a million times over. Today, I want to share with you some of our ideas for Disney World. Of course, there will be another amusement theme park in Florida, similar to the one in California. In fact, just this little area alone is five times the size of Disneyland in California. More importantly, he starts talking about the future plans for utilizing the space, including adding airports, entrance complexes, a transit system that ties the whole thing together. And then he just can't hold back anymore. The most exciting, the far the most important part of our Florida project, in fact, the heart of everything we'll be doing in Disney World, will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. We call it Epcot. There's that word again. Heart. The heart of Disney World. Epcot isn't to be some silly side project. It's the only thing that matters. Just like how Walt, when he was alive, was the only thing that mattered to Disney. Epcot will take its cue from the new ideas and new technologies that are now emerging from the creative centers of American industry. It will be a community of tomorrow that will never be completed, but will always be introducing and testing and demonstrating 
new materials, and new systems. I don't believe there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. Walt has him eating out of the palm of his hand now. The audience is on the edge of their seats. Walt Disney himself is going to solve every problem society has faced over the last 50 years. And he's going to do it from beyond the grave. But where do we begin? How do we start answering this great challenge? Well, we're convinced we must start with the public need. And the need is not just for curing the old ills of old cities. We think the need is for starting from scratch on virgin land and building a special kind of new community. So that's what Epcot is, an experimental prototype community that will always be in a state of becoming. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future where people actually live a life they can't find anywhere else in the world. And there it is. The only thing Walt will ever need to say about Epcot to sell people on his dream. It's a place where people can live if they can't find anything else. It's the American Dream 2.0. Imagine Roy watching this from backstage, his palms sweaty and his heart racing, knowing that he's about to follow Walt Disney. He's going to have to walk out on that stage and give his sales pitch for some kind of disney utopia. He's going to have to face making Walt's dream a reality just after Walt sold it better than he ever could. And you have to do it while facing government regulators. We don't presume to know all the answers. In fact, we're counting on the cooperation of American industry to provide their very best thinking during the planning and the creation of our experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And most important of all, when Epcot has become a reality and we find the need for technologies that don't even exist today, it's our hope that Epcot will stimulate American industry to develop new solutions that will meet the needs of people expressed right here in this experimental community. Well, that's our basic philosophy for Epcot. By now, I'm sure you're wondering how people will actually live and work and move around in our community of tomorrow. So in the next few minutes, we'll go into detail about some of our preliminary sketches and layouts. Remember those I said earlier, this is just the beginning. With that thought in mind, let's have a look. The brilliance of this pitch is all of the reversals he pulls. It's not surrounded by miles and miles of swampland, It's a guarantee that you'll never need to build a fence. It's not that cars are banned. It's that you get to live the carefree life of a pedestrian at all times. It's not that you can never retire. It's that you'll always have full employment. Finally, Walt returns to close the deal. Walt the Hart had pulled it off one more time. I believe we can build a community that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. And with your cooperation, I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now.
The audience erupts in cheers. Roy takes a deep breath. This is the moment. He channels his inner Walt, waves to the audience, and says four simple words. Wasn't that a dream? Now, the night's far from over, of course. Roy speaks on stage about the project, giving some additional financial information, stuff that wasn't included in the pitch. He is, at his core, still the money man. Other members of the team come on stage to explain the drainage district. And then they explain to the crowd that they've asked Florida for two municipalities, Buena Vista and Bay Lake. And they're asking for a law to create the Reedy Creek Improvement District. It was three bills, they told the audience, that would allow Walt's wildest dreams to come to life. It was also these three bills that would give the Disney Corporation complete control over the land. Every single thing Walt asked for. Drainage, power, water, public transport, airports, fire and emergency systems, police, their own coroner. Oh, by the way, did you know that according to the Walt Disney World coroner, nobody has ever died at Walt Disney World? Isn't that weird? Well, it's true. At least according to the Walt Disney World coroner. In exchange, all the company was asking for from the public the taxpayers, was wider highways to handle the influx of all the massive traffic they were going to bring in. Hallowell made it clear that this was a very simple ask. They just needed bigger roads. They weren't looking for gimmicks, no tax concessions, and they didn't have any secret curveballs. Meanwhile, Governor Kirk, seeing that reaction, how the crowd just went nuts to the pitch, it does the politics thing. He explains that this project will bring in $6.6 billion in economic benefits for Florida over the first 10 years. And all they had to do was just give Disney the rights to, you know, do whatever the hell they want in Central Florida. And again, the crowd cheers. Roy had done it. He had effectively pulled off the magic trick of his life. He brought Walt back from the grave for one last show. He'd won over two different governors, and thanks to the financial boon Disney was promising in exchange for power, only two months after his brother died, Roy was living up to everything Walt had wanted. And this act didn't turn out to be a one-night show. From here, Roy and Kirk hit the road as a duo. They gave presentations in Jacksonville. They filmed their own intercuts for a television version of Walt's Epcot pitch. Two months later, there's a bill sitting in the Florida House of Representatives. That morning, Hallowell shows up to play the presentation for the lawmakers. Those three very simple itty-bitty laws ended up weighing in at a whopping 481 pages of legislation covering everything from the foundation of two new Disney-owned cities to, yes, the ability to switch to nuclear power to light up the park, if they wanted, or any other future technology. The only thing the state was still on the hook for was collecting taxes and inspecting elevators. When Governor Kirk finishes the deal on May 12th, he jokes to Roy, oh, you forgot to include a provision for a crown for your brand new kingdom. Everyone laughs. And the deal is done. Wait, that's it? 
No struggle to win over lawmakers one at a time. No wheeling and dealing. No long-winded debates about what the project could mean for the future of Florida. They just play this magical Epcot film, pass out 500 pages worth of privileges, and the government just says, yeah, sounds great. Here you go. Roy and Halliwell play it cool. They maintain that what they got passed wasn't anything out of the ordinary for corporations, especially ones trying to build on large lots of land. But that's only true if you're looking at the drainage district. What these two men had done, along with that last-minute pitch from Walt, was unprecedented in this country. They just scored the ability for Walt Disney World to function as its own pocket government with a board that looks an awful lot like it had more power than either of the two counties it took up space in. Oh, and the government? Didn't take long for some of the members of Congress to feel buyer's remorse on what they'd been sold by Disney. In fact, some of them immediately started saying they hated the plan from the start. So how did the legislation get to Governor Kirk's desk without a fight? You know the answer. Walt Disney, the ultimate salesman. Without that Epcot film, there's no way the public would have felt so enthusiastic about a society where you give up your rights in exchange for Walt's greater good. But Walt knew exactly what people would want to hear, and that's why he got total control. At this point, it was checkmate. Any representative that didn't follow through would be run out of town. They'd be replaced with somebody more likely to grant them their dreams. Worse, any negotiations would have scared Disney away. Didn't matter that the company knew it had nowhere else to go. The government agencies in charge of drawing up these details were terrified that Disney would leave under any amount of pushback. There was just too much momentum. How do you know when a con is happening? It's when you hear the phrase, and that's why I need your money right now. Walt Disney World is a tribute to the philosophy and the life of Walter Elias Disney and to the talents, the dedication, and the loyalty of the entire Disney organization that made Walt Disney's dream come true. May Walt Disney World bring joy and inspiration and new knowledge. So we're back at that moment, October 1st, 1971, when by God Roy Disney had done it. We're back to the opening ceremonies at Disney World, when anything still feels possible. They have complete control of the land, the government, and the goodwill of the people. Disney World is here. Only, yes, it is pretty far from Walt's vision, isn't it? I mean, yeah, there's a park there, and it's probably how Walt envisioned it. But I keep going back to that map, the one that towered over Walt. Magic Kingdom being the tiniest sliver of his vision. The rest of that incredibly expansive space taken over by Epcot. Of course, Walt's been gone for nearly five years now. And try as he might, Roy 
can't seem to get the board to approve any of the plans for the city of tomorrow. They have the land, they have the rights, but the project just can't get off the ground. And when Roy passes away just two months after these opening ceremonies, that's when the possibility of Epcot dies too. Whatever dreams the Disney brothers had, whatever vision Walt saw while he was counting tiles in his hospital bed, it's never going to happen. Yes, a group of aspiring Imagineers, they did dust off the plans in the mid-70s, but this time it was not going to be about finding the solutions to all of America's problems. It was just about building a second park. Epcot, the park, the one you and I know, opens on October 1st, 1982, and in every way, it's pretty much the exact opposite of Walt's dream. Walt, who marched out of St. Louis because he didn't want to sell beer... Congrats, now Food and Wine Festival is the best part of Epcot. And keep in mind, I love it. That new Guardians of the Galaxy ride is super dope. But what a twist. After landing the plane and having all the ingredients, nobody could be bothered to make Walt's actual fantasy come true. But what if Walt didn't die? What if decades later, the experimental prototype city of tomorrow was a real place? We can't know for sure what it would be like, but we could look at some, I guess in real estate, they would call these comps. Because ultimately, Epcot was a self-contained company town. And that means we could compare it to other company towns. See how well they did. You ever hear of Fordlandia? Henry Ford had this grand vision. He needed rubber for his tires, so he bought up a huge chunk of Brazil. And he had a grand vision of American values there, so he did bonkers things like insist on regular square dances and forbid the sale or consumption of alcohol. That second part led to riots. But they could make that rubber, right, for all of his tires. Except that they planted the trees too close to each other. They couldn't make it. Then, whoopsie-doodle, World War II comes along, synthetic rubber is invented, and now here's a company town, City of Tomorrow, with no export. It's a husk, a ghost town. Or what about this one? You ever hear of Toyota Japan? No, not the car company. I mean the city, Toyota. Used to be called Koromo, but it changed its name to Toyota in 1959 to honor the car company. Because they brought all those factories and the jobs. Toyota, the company, lends a hand in urban planning stuff. It's got a big Toyota stadium. But yes, although Toyota is the big dog in town... This is not a self-contained city of tomorrow. This is a closer parallel to, I guess, Detroit. Like, yeah, there's one 800-pound gorilla. But that's not the city of tomorrow. But both of those first two at least had an export. Did you notice that Epcot 
doesn't seem to have any exports. It would be a place to showcase ideas. I guess another way to put that is to expand a philosophy of American capitalism. This is where it gets freaky. Because if I'm thinking of a town with a charismatic leader with a singular vision trying to build a community for tomorrow that doesn't really export anything, a place where you're going to live until you die, let's go down to Guiana, a little town called Jonestown. No exports, everybody living in a perfect model of what the future should look like, until they all drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. But that's not very... Disney? Let's go full Disney. Let's go to the version that Michael Eisner wanted to pull out. You know, one that's kind of Epcot-like, where you could live on campus, have direct access to the parks. That town does exist. It's called Celebration. The people who live there love Disney. But if Epcot was supposed to be the city of tomorrow, Celebration is old-school Americana to its core. It's looking backwards, not forwards. And the thing about Celebration is once Disney built it, they just handed the community the keys. 20 years later, there's leaky roofs, mold. Some of the houses couldn't even be sold. Look, man, I'll just say it. I think Epcot was a very bad idea. It was a closed-off community that was a company town that had zero exports. Unless imagination is an export. But even then, they had no plans for training people up. No higher education. Couldn't be a hub of intellectual design. And there's only so many goofy plushies it's possible to sell. It's the perfect solution to a problem that didn't exist. I think Epcot, as it was originally conceived, was a terrible, terrible idea. If you ask me, the best thing to happen to Walt's legacy is that his vision of Epcot never came to pass. However, for all my pessimism... We'll never know what would have happened if Walt kept hands-on all the way through creation. There's part of me that sees like a force ghost Walt lighting a cigarette from the beyond and shaking his head, saying, Brian, you just don't get it. I had it all figured out. And that's what's fascinating. I can't let go of that 1% chance that Walt could have done it. This is the guy who took cartoons and made animated features worthy of Oscars, so many Oscars. This is the guy that took filthy old carnivals, made them a hundred times bigger and functional all year round. Tourist destinations for more than half a century. Everybody doubted Walt and everybody kept being wrong. So I guess here's where I'm at. On paper, the original conception of Epcot was a terrible idea. But by God, if anybody could have pulled it off, it was going to be this singular man, Walt Disney, the leader who had Florida fall in love with his dreams so hard 
they handed him the rights worthy of a government. And no matter if they got squandered or not, Disney's dream of Epcot and all of the ridiculous wins they got as a result of it, that might just be the world's greatest con. This episode of World's Greatest Con was written by Will Saddleberg and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. The show is executive produced by Justin Robert Young. Production and research by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Credit to Married to the Mouse by Richard E. Fogelsong and Buying Disney's World by Aaron H. Goldberg, which along with other contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archive videos made for the bulk of our research. Support us directly and keep the world's greatest cons coming by heading on over to patreon.com slash greatest con. You'll get an ad-free feed, early access to all the good information, and behind-the-scenes extras. Of course, you have questions, and we want to answer as many as we can, so hit us up at worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.